you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Psalm 32. And uh, for those of you watching online, uh, we will be celebrating communion uh, a little later in the service. So if you'd like to um, get some bread and some juice, I'd invite you to do that as well. Well, today we are beginning a brand new series called Emotions and Relationships. And for the next six weeks, we'll be talking about how we feel. Anybody starting to get a little uncomfortable? For six weeks, you're talking about how we feel? Why are we doing that? Well, it's because you cannot be spiritually mature and emotionally immature. You cannot be close to God and close to others going through life connected if you are not handling your emotions in the proper way. So for the next six weeks, we're going to talk about our emotions, and God created these emotions. Sometimes we associate emotions with uh, weakness. They're not. Emotions are associated with being human. God created us to feel. When we look at Jesus, the one we are following, we uh, discover as we read the Gospels that he experienced a variety of emotions. For example, when a centurion, a Roman soldier, expressed great faith, Jesus was delighted. When Jesus looked over Jerusalem and mindful that many would reject him, he felt sad. When Jesus encountered the Pharisees, these people that were self-righteous and selfish and hypocritical, and instead of moving people closer to God, they moved them further from God, Jesus interacting with them, he was angry. When the disciples returned and the 72 returned, sharing all that God the Father had done through them and in them through his Holy Spirit, Jesus was full of joy. And when Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus with Mary and Martha, the two sisters of Lazarus, he was full of grief. He wept. Emotions are given to us from God. It's part of being human. And God gave us these emotions to move us. Our English word emotion comes from the Latin word emovere, which means to move. So if you'd like, you can think about your emotions as a vehicle. When you feel something, that emotion is going to take you somewhere. The question is not, are you going to feel? The question is, where is that emotion going to take you? Is it going to take you to a place where you are closer to God and closer to people? Or is that emotion going to take you to a place where you are further from God and further from people? And so what we're going to do in the next six weeks is we're going to learn how to process our emotions so we get to the right place. And we're going to use the book of Psalms to help us. The book of Psalms, in that book we find that we are given permission to feel, permission to express our emotions. We find in the book of Psalms we are given language for our emotions. And we find in the book of Psalms people processing their emotions. 
I want to ask you as we begin this series, how do you process your emotions? Some of you maybe are, uh, you practice it by emotional, what we call emotional avoidance. That uh, some of you were brought up in the silent generation or the builder generation, and you really weren't taught to deal with your feelings, right? There was so much work to be done, a world war had just ended, and, and work on the farm, and you just kind of were, were told to almost suppress your emotions. We ju we're just not talking about those emotions. And the, and the challenge with that is that that doesn't lead to emotional health. Because when we suppress anger or jealousy or envy, it always rises to the top. It bleeds out. On the other hand, maybe you process emotions the way the world currently tells us to, especially for the younger generation. And instead of emotional avoidance, it's emotional indulgence. That in our culture, we're told almost that you are what you feel. So if that's how you feel, then that's right. If that's how you feel, then that's true. If that's how you feel, then you need to do it. If that's how you feel, then that's who you are. And that approach to processing emotions is not healthy either. When you are driven by your emotions, you go to a lot of bad places. So we're going to learn how to process our emotions. And here's the challenge for us in the next six weeks, that when I feel something, I want to take, identify that feeling, and I want to align it or learn to align it with what I know is true, with God, with the truth about God. I'm not going to become emotionally healthy by saying to myself, I shouldn't feel this way. And parents, you're not to be saying to your kids, you shouldn't feel that way. It's not the best approach. It's taking that emotion that they feel or you feel and then aligning it with the truth of God. And so that's what we're going to be doing for the next six weeks. And I want to mention that when you are emotionally healthy or you're becoming more emotionally healthy, that your emotions are caught by other people. And that's a good, good thing if you're on your way to emotional health. Daniel Goleman, who wrote the kind of the classic emotional intelligence, as well as he wrote social intelligence, he said from all of his research that emotions are more contagious than the flu. So we're taking steps, you know, not to catch the coronavirus and other viruses, but the reality is every day we're catching the emotions of other people. So for example, if someone dumps a toxic emotion on you, uh, there's an outburst of anger, or maybe you're the one that, that does that, but if someone dumps that emotion of anger on you, it has neurological consequences. It activates your brain so that uh, your, it activates your brain, your circuitry, so that you can experience the same feeling. And that's why Hours later, or days later, or weeks later, you can still retain that mood from that emotional outburst of anger. You still retain that, or you can retain that. And so my point is, is that when you become emotionally healthy, you're on that journey, that people around you are catching a good thing. That our emotions can make people feel better, or they can make people feel Worse. So think of your kids, grandkids, as you are striving to become 
healthy with your emotions. They're going to benefit. And parents, I will say to you that your children not only need to learn, and we'll be talking this over six, this next six weeks, but your children not only need to learn to think biblically, so they're, they're listening to what you say, but your children need to learn to feel biblically, so they're, they're catching how you feel. So today we're looking at the emotion of shame, and actually we're going to look at two emotions, shame and guilt, because they're closely related, they're close cousins, and typically uh, uh, guilt is driving and shame is riding shotgun, okay? So shame and guilt often go together. Now there is a difference that we need to be aware of. First, guilt is action-based. It's, I did something bad. I feel guilty for what I did. It's about what we do, actions. Shame, on the other hand, is identity-based. I am something bad. I feel shame for who I am. So action-based, identity-based. Now, we can carry shame uh, because of a number of reasons. We can carry shame in our lives. I'm no good. I'm, I'm unworthy. We can carry that because of something we did. We did something bad years ago or a number of things, and we never get over it, and, and we just carry that shame with us to do with what we did. We can carry shame because of what someone does to us. When someone does something bad to us, and we're not at fault, we're not guilty, we can still carry the shame of what happened to us by someone else. And then we can carry shame because someone spoke destructive words over us. And there's a whole variety uh, of shame. There's uh, physical shame, I'm ugly. There's social shame, you know, nobody loves me. I'm just a horrible people person. And then there's performance shame, I'm a terrible dad, I'm a terrible wife, I, I'm never good enough, I, I'm just no good. So shame is identity-based. I'm worthless, I'm disgusting, I'm defective, I'm unworthy of being known in love. I deserve to be abandoned. So shame and guilt will take us, when we experience that, to dark places, places of isolation. But God wants shame and guilt to take us to a different place. When you feel shame and guilt, it's an opportunity for God to take you to the place of freedom and grace. God's will for your life is that you live without guilt and shame. He is not a God of guilt and shame. He's a God of grace and forgiveness. And he wants you in this place of freedom. So Psalm 32, let me give you just a quick context. David, uh, for those of you not familiar with David, he lived about 3,000 years ago, and he became king. He fought a guy called Goliath, who was a Philistine. 3,000 years ago, the land of Israel, there was uh, battles all around them, and they were engaged in battles, and David defeated uh, Goliath, uh, this Philistine, to the west of, of the land of Israel. He was made king eventually. While he was king, one day, one uh, in time, he was on his roof, and there was a woman uh, named Bathsheba, and he, in a sense, lusted after her, so he sent his servant to get her, and she came to the palace, and he committed adultery with her. She was married to someone called Uriah, and David really used Bathsheba. It was a power imbalance. He had all the power. She didn't. He used her. 
And after he used her, he didn't deal with what he did. He tried to cover it up. But the problem was, there was another problem in addition to that problem, is that Bathsheba eventually got word to him that she was pregnant with his child. And so he, uh, realizing that Uriah, her husband, is on the battlefield, that he's been there for months, that, that um, it would become to be known that Uriah wasn't the father. And so try to cover up what he did. He had Uriah come back from the battlefield uh, to his wife, Bathsheba. Uh, Uriah, you've been on the battlefield. Come and get some R&R. The king says to do that. Uriah comes back, but the problem was he was a man, an honorable man, and he said, I can't go and sleep with my wife and be with my wife when my fellow uh, countrymen are on the battlefield, and so he slept on a mat. And so David has another problem. So he sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a note for his commander, Joab, and, he, and Joab gets this letter from the king that says, put Uriah on the front lines, and sure enough, Uriah was put on the front lines, and he was killed in battle. So David has not only committed adultery, but he's complicit, or he's, he's also committed murder. And he writes Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 with that context. And in this psalm, he's going to talk about what it looks like to be in the place where you are free from guilt and shame, what it looks like to live life without guilt and shame. And then he's going to talk to us about the place that he was. He wasn't in that place. He was in the place where he carried guilt and shame. He carried it for over a year, trying to cover it up. And then he's going to talk to us about how he got from this dark, secret place to the place of freedom and forgiveness. And may you process and may you find yourself going through life in this place. So Psalm 32 Verses 1 and 2, David writes this, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Do you want to be happy? And the word blessed is, is much more than, than happy. It's, it's a very rich word. Do you want to be happy, happy, happy? Here's what it looks like. It's the person who is forgiven from their transgressions, from their sins. Friends, the good news for you today is that there is a God who is not a guilt, God of guilt and shame, but he's a God of forgiveness. And this God loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus to this world to die in your place on a cross for your sins. And God has taken the responsibility of your sins. The word forgiven there uh, means in the Hebrew to lift a heavy burden and carry it away. That that's what God wants to do for all of us, to lift the burden of sin and God wants to carry it away so that we're going through life without guilt. Blessed is the person whose transgressions are forgiven. Secondly, blessed is the person whose sins are covered. Friends, we have a God who when you place your faith in Jesus, you repent and you confess your sin and you trust what he did on the cross for you, the moment you do that, you 
are given the robe of righteousness. You're given the robe of Christ so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. It's covered with the robe of Christ. You are righteous. You are right with him. And blessed, thirdly, is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. As we heard earlier from Psalm 130, if you, Lord, were to keep a record of sins, who could stand? Answer, no one. But with you, there is forgiveness. Psalm 103, David said, as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our sins, our transgressions from us. In other words, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you with your sin. You're, you're in the robe of righteousness. But you'll never, ever be judged for your sins. East and west don't meet. He's removed your sins from you. Anybody getting a little bit excited here about our great God? Wow, blessed. Now notice this. David writes this, and he had experienced God's forgiveness. He was a man after God's own heart. But because of this sin and covering it up, there was deceit. So he adds this, and in whose spirit is no deceit. So the blessed person is the person whose sins are forgiven and their sins are covered and the Lord doesn't count their sins against them. And in whose spirit there's no deceit, he's not covering them up. So there's the person, what it's like to be blessed. And then David tells us, I wasn't in that place. Verses three and four. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David is describing what it was like being in this dark secret place where he was silent, where he was carrying guilt and shame. For over a year after his sins, he was still carrying them, not dealing with them, hiding them. And friends, please understand this. There's always a consequence to sin. Sin separates. It separates us from God. It separates us from people. And notice David talks about the spiritual consequence. He says, uh, for day and night your hand was heavy on me. For that, over that year, God, your hand was heavy on me. The, the weight of guilt and shame was on me. Shame destroys intimacy where there's secrecy and shame, there will be no intimacy. And David had no intimacy with God for over a year, spiritual consequence. There's also physical consequences to sin. He, notice he says, my bones wasted away. There's emotional consequences to sin. Um, I was groaning and my strength was sapped as in the heat of day. Uh, emotionally, we're drained when we're carrying guilt and sin and, and shame. And then also, Sin and guilt and shame affects us relationally, right? People that are carrying it often are critical of others or they're defensive with others or they isolate from others. We can isolate when we're carrying guilt and sin. Sometimes someone will be coming to church, but then guilt or sin comes into their life and they don't deal with it. And what can happen is they can begin to stop coming to church 
because they're not close to God. There's this sin there that they're not dealing with, and so they want to avoid just coming to this in, to an environment. And then they find that they start to avoid people as well, especially other Christians, because they don't want to be reminded of their sins. So they'll find it an environment where sin is no big deal, new friends where sin isn't a big deal. There's relational consequences as well. And so David says, I was in this place and I was experiencing this. For over a year, he was there. But then God sent Nathan the prophet and Nathan the prophet confronted David with his sin. And David's response was not excusing himself of it, calling it a blunder, saying to, to Nathan, you don't understand what it's like to be king. There's so many pressures. David owned his sin, verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. I acknowledged my sin to you, God. I owned it. David's talking about repentance, and he's talking about confession. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Repentance and confession is a gift from God. Repentance means to turn from something and do a 180 to something else. Repentance is turning from sin and saying this is wrong and turning to God. Repentance is restorative. It's where we turn and we go and God invites us back to him. And confession is agreeing with God is saying, you're right, God, I agree with you. So my sin, I turn from it, and I turn to God, and I say, I, I've sinned, God, this is wrong, I confess it. And then notice what David says. He says, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Notice that he didn't, God didn't just forgive David of his sin, he forgave David of the guilt of his sin. God didn't just forgive David and say, I want to take away your guilt. But God said to David, I want to take away your shame, forgiving the guilt of what he did. And that is the good news for us today, that Jesus not only forgives us of our, the, our sin, but the guilt of our sin. And the good news about Jesus, the gospel is not, ask Jesus to save you from your sins, but you have to go through life feeling really, really bad about yourself and who you are. That's not the gospel. The gospel, the good news is, Jesus wants to forgive you of all your sins, and he wants to forgive you and take away your shame as well. When Jesus died on the cross, all of your sins were placed on him, every last one of them. I don't know about you, but probably if the Lord should tarry in the next five years, I'll probably commit a sin. Surprise, anybody? Talk to my wife. But that was covered. I was forgiven of that. So all my sins were placed on Jesus. But all my shame associated of what, for, connected with what I've done or I do, that all my shame was placed on Jesus as well. Jesus is not only our lamb, he is our scapegoat. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but he's also the scapegoat. If you look in your Bibles in the Old Testament, all of those sacrifices 
were looking forward to the once and all sacrifice that Jesus would make. People were looking to what God would do for them. And you'll find in the Old Testament, particularly the book of Leviticus, where once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was to take two goats. And one goat was taken into the tabernacle. The, the, the blood of the goat was, was um, placed in the tabernacle. And that blood of that goat atoned for the sins of the people. But the second goat was taken by someone and taken outside of the camp. That goat was led out into the wilderness, the uninhabitable places. And the reason that that goat was called to, they were to do that is because God, what he wanted was to give the people a visual reminder that all of their sin and the, the shame with their sin was pronounced on the second goat and that goat would leave the camp. In other words, your sins are forgiven and your shame is taken away. He is our scapegoat. Friends, that is wonderful news that we don't have to feel bad about who we are. Oh, you forgive me, God, but I'm just still a wretched person. That's not God's will for you. Jesus is our scapegoat as well. And so David acknowledging his sin, confessing it, repenting of it, God forgives him of his guilt and his shame. And then he invites the people, verse 6, to do the same. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. The call is for all of you people to repent of your sins and confess them to God while he may be found. Don't put it off. Do it today. And the mighty waters, waters, the, the ocean in the Old Testament, people didn't know what was out there at that time. It was dark. It was a symbol of judgment. And God's judgment surely will not reach you. So the invitation is given to everyone. And then look what David says at the end of his psalm, verse 11. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. David is calling all the righteous people. Who are the righteous people? Are they the perfect people? No, they're the people who are right with God, whose sins are all forgiven, who are covered in the robe of righteousness, and who the Lord does not count their sins against them. Sing, rejoice. And friends, that's why you see in our world, down through the ages, people just like you and me, who sing and praise God and amazing grace is the soundtrack of their life where they understand that without Jesus they have no hope they're sinners but because of Jesus they're forgiven and set free from their guilt and shame and the only response is God you are so good I am unworthy of this but you've done this for me I praise you I want to ask you is amazing grace the soundtrack of your life that even uh, not just on the good days, but on the bad days when things are not going how we want, when things are, in a sense, very difficult or they're just horrible. In spite of all of that, and we might question, God, are you there and are you listening? In spite of that, deep in your soul, you're just still singing that you belong to God. I want to take a few moments now to talk about some steps we can take to overcome guilt and shame. Two simple steps. 
Emotional health and overcoming guilt and shame is as simple as putting our faith in Jesus and it's as hard as putting our faith in Jesus. So here's the first step. Bring your guilt to Jesus. What you did wrong, bring it to him. Don't run away from him. Run to him. Repent. Turn around and confess it. Lord, this is wrong. That's what David did. David acknowledged, and he used the word transgressions, which is a strong word for sin. We have sin, iniquity, transgressions. It's the strongest word. It means crimes. God, forgive me. I acknowledge my sin. I confess it. And God forgave him of his crimes. He brought his guilt, what he did wrong. And notice he didn't say, I acknowledged my slip-ups, my blunders, my inadequacies. He called it sin. Do you acknowledge your sin? We live in a culture where it's politically incorrect to talk about sin. And what I find very curious is that we live in a culture, and if you, you look on social media, some comments, everybody has an opinion about somebody else. They have a justice radar, and that person is wrong, and they deserve this, and they're so wrong. But they don't have a justice radar for themselves. Don't you say I've done anything wrong? So we have a culture that doesn't want to talk about sin. In addition to that, uh, many of them look at religious people, and they have this mistaken notion because confession has been abused by religious people, it's been used as a, a tool, a, a power, um, a weapon over people. You're a horrible person, you need to do this or pay this. Or, and, 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 and they think that's what confession is. And they never ever acknowledge their sin to God. And they miss the joy and freedom of Jesus forgiving their sins. Brene Brown, who has... Uh, written uh, a lot to do with shame and has a number of truths um, that she communicates. Uh, all truth is God's truth. But the problem is this. She says that the antidote to shame is empathy and vulnerability. That, that we need to, uh, with others and with ourselves, in a sense, cut a little bit of slack we need to be open about things that maybe we feel aren't right. And you need to do that for me, and I need to do that for you. Friends, that is a good starting point. But that's not the antidote. The antidote to shame is Jesus and what he did on the cross for you. Because over here, without God, we're just trying to get this stuff off of me. Right? We have a fallen sin nature. We're moral beings created in the image of God. God's a moral God. So deep down, we have this sense, something's not quite right in my life. And we can suppress that and, and you know, talk with other people and all that. But if we never confess it to God, we're going to carry that through life. But with Jesus, he says, I want your guilt. I want your shame. Give it to me. There's what's called a shame exchange. You give me your sin and your guilt and your shame and all you've done wrong, and I'm going to give you a robe of righteousness. And what he did on the cross for you, once you trust him to forgive you, you are forgiven. Your guilt is taken away by him. Now, you may not feel 
totally forgiven. You may feel, still feel guilty, and your feelings may be real, but you take those feelings and you align them with what you know to be true with God, that they really are true. And so you take that feeling and you align it. Lord, help me to believe that you really have forgiven me of all my sins. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, you are forgiven of all of your sins, all of the guilt. But then that leads to the question, wait a second, if I'm forgiven of everything, all my sins because of Jesus dying on the cross for me, hey, I can go on sinning. I get a free pass. He's covered all my sins. I can go on sinning. The initial step of repentance and confession is when we receive Christ, we're saved from our sins. But the Christian life is ongoing repentance and confession. That I'm walking each day with Jesus and when I do something or say something I know is wrong, I confess it because I don't want anything to come between me and Jesus. I want to keep a short account with him. And so, Lord, I just, I'm confessing on a regular basis in my prayer life. Uh, that's a regular pattern that I pray. Uh, it, there's confession there. There's thanksgiving. There's requests. But it's, Lord, is there something I need to confess? And sometimes it's right on the, you know, it's right there. Other times it's, Lord, is there something? Did I say something wrong? Did I do something? And I confess it because I want to stay close to Jesus. Uh, let me just show, uh, remind you again of the three kind of aspects of salvation to see how this plays out. With salvation, us being saved, delivered, um, there is the past tense of salvation. If you look in the Bible, it talks about the past, that our sins were forgiven. And the word we talk about there is justification, that I'm declared righteous, right with God. So, Dan, are you saved? Yes, I am. I was saved back when I was this age. That's justification. There's a second aspect of our salvation, and that's sanctification. And that's where I am becoming more and more like Jesus, and that's why I want ongoing confession in my life. I'm saved not only from the penalty of sin, I want to be saved from the power of sin. Oh Lord, I don't want to sin. Help me to hate sin. So that's the process, confessing it daily. And then there is the third aspect, and that's glorification. That's the future tense. I, so I, I, I am saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. And can I just say this, folks, to remind you, if you're saved today, you are going to a guilt-free and a shame-free place. Is that not good news? We have a God who's not the God of guilt and shame. If you look back at the beginning with the first man and the first woman, they were in harmony with God and harmony with each other. It was beautiful. When they sinned, guilt and shame entered into the human experience. But this God loves us so much, he did something about it with Jesus' death on the cross. And one day Jesus is coming again, and we're going to live with him in a place where there will be no sin, and there'll be no guilt and no shame. I'm looking forward to a shame-free destiny. I really, really am. Bring your guilt to Jesus on an ongoing basis. Secondly, bring your shame 
to Jesus. Once we deal with our sin through confession and repentance, we can now speak to our shame narrative. That Shame is that even after we confess something, shame can still linger. And I gotta learn to bring that shame to Jesus. Lord, you take it. I don't want it. We have to identify and challenge toxic shame-based thoughts. Is there certain triggers that you can identify? I feel shame when. So i aware of those triggers, and then when that happens, when I feel shame, where's it gonna take me? I'm horrible, I'm no good, or is it gonna take me in the opposite direction towards God? And what I have to learn to do is reject shame-based thoughts. I have to reject believing something that is not true about me, and I have to learn to embrace what is true about me. I've got to put my thoughts on what is true, on who I am. And sometimes, bringing your shame to Jesus means, and often, it means sharing your struggle with someone you trust. Whether it's a a prayer partner in the church, it's your life group, Uh, It's our care support ministry. You reach out, but you start to talk about your guilt and shame because sometimes we need someone to come beside us and help us to untangle our thoughts and our feelings and, and help us to sort out things. Sometimes we need someone to come along beside us and remind us of the truth. Remind us when it comes to physical shame. You're not ugly because, here's the truth, when it comes to social shame, you're not a loser because, when it comes to performance shame, you are enough because. Bringing our shame to Jesus means we're sharing it with others who can help us. And here's the point that I, oh, just I hope you take with you today out of all the different points, is this. The only way to heal from shame is to, by faith, move the focus from who you are and what you've done and move the focus onto Jesus, on who he is and what he's done for you. It's moving from this focus where I'm horrible, I'm unwanted, I'm defective. That is not true. When I feel shame, I'm not going to go there, but I'm going to learn to go to this place where there's truth. And for you in Christ, here's what's true about you. That you would say, I'm a new creation. I'm made in the image of God. I'm forgiven of all my sins. I'm loved and accepted in Christ. I'm chosen in Christ. I'm whole in Christ. I'm holy in Christ. I'm the beloved of Christ. I'm a child of God. I'm called, justified, and glorified. I am triumphant in Christ. I am secure in Christ. Those are the truths that we need to begin to embrace. And as we do that, we may still have feelings, but we realize they're real, but they're not true. And we journey towards emotional health. And the person that begins to experience freedom from guilt and shame that's living here, they start to live a shame-free life. 
They start to have a shame-free marriage where with their spouse, they're not trying to guilt them and say, you are this, but rather they're focused on actions and working together as a team. That guilt-free marriage, guilt-free relationships, guilt-free parenting, not shaming kids, but helping kids to sort through what they're doing. And friends, Woodside is to be a shame-free church. And oh, how wonderful it is when shame-free people come together and we sing and we rejoice because we're righteous because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. I want to share with you that Jesus wants to say to you today, I want your guilt. Are you carrying it? Give it to me. I want your shame. Are you carrying it? I want to take it so that you can begin to heal and be free. Jesus says, in a sense, I want to unshame you. Jesus says, I want my love for you to overwhelm you so much that you, by faith, let it go and live in the place of emotional health. And people in this place are not living and working for God's grace. They're working and living from God's grace. 